This episode contains references to suicide and suicidal ideation and brief depictions of ableism and mental illness. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. If you or someone you love is struggling with suicidal thoughts or the impulse to self-harm, please seek help. The United States National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. The following is an excerpt from F. Marion Crawford's The Upper Birth, where our narrator is attacked in the night. It was something ghostly, horrible beyond words, and it moved in my grip. It was like the body of a man long drowned, and yet it moved and had the strength of ten men living, but I gripped it with all my might. The slippery, oozy, horrible thing. The dead white eyes seemed to stare at me out of the dusk, and its shiny hair hung in foul, wet curls over its dead face. It wound its corpse's arms about my neck, the living death, and overpowered me so that I, at last, cried aloud and fell and left my hold. Hi everyone, I'm Alastair Murden, and this is Haunted Places Ghost Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Ghost stories have arisen from every century and every corner of the world, from the streets of Victorian Whitechapel to the temples of Japan. Whether seated around the campfire or curled up with a pair of headphones, we return to them time and again to feel our skin crawl and our hearts race. Episodes of Ghost Stories are inspired by classic short stories from some of history's greatest authors. The following version is our own unique take. It may feel familiar in some ways and different in others. We hope you enjoy it. You can find episodes of Ghost Stories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, we conclude our back-to-back episodes based on the chilling work of writer F. Marion Crawford. Last week, we delved into the eerie, storybook-like horror of the doll's ghost. Today's episode, however, leaves the world of haunted dolls behind to tell a different kind of tale. A ghost story set at sea. First published in 1886 in an ocean-themed issue of Unwin's Annual, The Upper Birth is Crawford's most renowned story, and it's easy to see why. It is a masterwork of horror, all driven by the claustrophobia of being trapped aboard a ship. I will tell this story as Mr. Brisbane. Like many upper-class Victorians, he travels by steamship multiple times a year to maintain businesses on both sides of the Atlantic. An experienced traveler, Brisbane has found his own ways of maintaining his privacy even in tight quarters. But those tricks only go so far when you're rooming with the undead. Coming up, we set sail on a ship with a dark secret. 
When I first stepped aboard the Kamchatka in New York, a steward materialized from nowhere. Robert was a pale fellow with a wispy red beard creeping along his chin. I offered him a crisp bill as payment to bring me to my room, so he promptly collected my belongings and asked me where we were headed. Now, the Kamchatka is one of my preferred ships when crossing the pond, as most of the cabins are double-sized and for a good price. And so, I gave Robert the number of one such room, cabin 105. I was tired, so I'll admit I was a bit brusque when I spoke. But based on Robert's reaction alone, one would have thought I had slapped the poor fellow. His face drained of color, and his eyes went wide as if in shock. I worried that he would faint, but instead, he repeated the cabin number back to me with a quiver in his voice and asked me if I was certain. I wasn't sure if he'd failed to clean it or perhaps the room was double booked, but I was exhausted and in no mood to make rearrangements, so I simply nodded and said, be quick about it. We did not speak as we made our way below deck, which suited me fine. There was plenty of noise to fill the air around us. Tourists milled about, gawking out the portholes while the stewards hoard luggage and sailors shared stories. As we arrived at the door to my cabin, the lights of the ship dimmed softly, and I heard the slight groan and thrum of the engines. We were shoving off through the Hudson Bay, heading toward Fire Island. So began the week-long journey to London once again. I sighed, exhausted. Well, go on, open it, I said to Robert. He obliged, his hand shaking as he held the door open, but he refused to step foot any further. I paid him no mind and entered the room myself. The cabin was small but tidy, with an upper and lower berth, and, just as I expected, the lower bed was a double obscured by small, dark curtains. All in all, it had a wash basin, small closet, and even a shelf. I eyed the berth above the one I'd purchased and turned to Robert. Am I to be sharing the space? I asked him. I desperately hoped not. The young man paused for an oddly long time. Finally, he spoke. I'm not certain, but I would seek out a bunkmate, if possible. For your sake. He was behaving very strangely. I tried to interrogate him further, but he paid no attention to me. Instead, he dropped my bags in front of the door, turned on his heel, and left. I was too tired to care. I placed my suitcase in the closet and my umbrella on the hook. I considered a drink from the water decanter, but thought better of it when I saw the liquid was slightly brown. If I did, in fact, have a bunkmate, the fellow must have been dawdling on deck. But for the time being, I was glad to be alone. I walked straight to the bed and collapsed into a beautiful, dreamless slumber. Some hours later, I awoke to the stinging smell of brine. I opened my eyes, shivering in the salty draft, when I saw that the porthole was open. I looked around for the culprit, but there was no one in the room. I marched over to the window and closed it, muttering under my breath about how I could have drowned or the whole ship been flooded. But as I turned back toward my bunk, I noticed a set of bags that hadn't been there when I'd gone to sleep. I had a companion. 
His suitcase was rather similar to mine, though more battered, and from the looks of his bunk, he must have been in a rush as he'd left his clothes lying about. The pale sleeve of a white shirt peeked out from beneath the curtains of his berth. I should have been used to having a cabin mate by now, but the truth was I preferred to be alone. So I decided to proceed as I usually did. I would avoid the room as much as possible aside from rest. If I was sleeping, the mysterious stranger could not bother me and I could not bother him. It was really the noble thing to do. It was a little late, but I headed above deck for a drink. People were much more tolerable when sharing brandy and cigars. It wasn't until nearly three in the morning that I came back to the room. My eyes were heavy, my head already hurt, and my companion was snoring. He appeared to be a tall man with wiry limbs, but beyond that, I hadn't the faintest clue about him. Even by the light of the lantern, the curtains obscured everything beyond his general shape. I washed up and headed to bed myself. I'd been asleep for a handful of minutes when I heard an ear-piercing scream. I looked around wildly. My ears were filled with the sound of panicked breathing, but I couldn't tell if it was someone else's or my own. I concentrated, slowly following the sound until I realized it was coming from above me. My roommate suddenly fell from the upper berth. Before I could offer to help, he stumbled to his feet, hands outstretched in panic, staring both at me and somehow beyond me. He cried out once more, then fled from the room, leaving the door wide open. I went to the doorway, my heart still pounding, and stuck my head out into the hall. There, I saw him turn the corner and disappear into the depths of the ship, screaming. Other doors opened in his wake. I caught dirty looks from several of my neighbors as if the man's disturbance was my fault. This made me irritable. Not only was it not my fault, but now I'd never be able to sleep after the night's chaos. I slammed the cabin door shut. Some fellow's drunkenness was not my concern. I turned back to the room when I noticed the porthole was open again. I walked over to it and pushed on the latch, but it seemed to be stuck. It was then that I was hit by the scent of salt and wet rot. I coughed, struggling to push the window closed and block out the smell. But it was a stubborn thing. Even with both hands, it took all my strength to move it an inch. By the time it closed, my muscles were screaming. I climbed back into bed. I could still hear what I assumed to be my roommate's screams, so I pulled the covers over my head and shut my eyes, attempting to retreat to my own peaceful silence. And I must have succeeded, as I slept like the dead the rest of the night. When I woke the next morning, I noticed my companion's clothes were still on his bed, but he was nowhere to be found. And, to my irritation, the porthole had once again been left open. Swallowing the sounds of my own frustration, I slammed the thing shut. I was on my way to breakfast when the captain stopped me and asked after my roommate. I told him I hadn't seen the man since he ran screaming from our room the night before. I assume he had far too much to drink, I told the captain. But the concerned look on his face raised my suspicions. Between this and the steward, 
I was beginning to suspect they knew my bunkmate was trouble and roomed him with me anyway. It wasn't a nice way to treat a repeat passenger, I said. But the captain didn't wilt under my suspicions. He looked me straight in the eyes and told me the truth. Three suicides have been recorded in room 105. I'm trying to see if there's a fourth on our hands. I was suddenly racked with guilt at my desire to not have a roommate at all. Embarrassed, I offered the captain all that I knew. If there is a fourth, as you say, I'm not aware of it. I saw him leave as though the hounds of hell were nipping at his feet, but that's all. I'm no great source of information, I'm afraid. It's a strange room, though, to be sure. Very finicky porthole. The captain nodded, almost knowingly. Then he cleared his throat and returned to his respectful but distanced tone. <clears throat> May I persuade you to switch rooms? Our ship's doctor has a free bunk and is a very fun fellow. I knew that I should say yes. It would have been the logical choice to agree to a different room. But I would have to share that one as well, and I could not risk another night of interrupted sleep. My roommate's potential death was tragic, yes, but I must admit, it did offer a small opportunity for privacy. I resolved to say a prayer for the man's soul as soon as we reached port, then I declined the captain's offer and went about my business. That evening, I lay in my bed, blissfully alone. But though I planned to enjoy my solitude, I found sleep difficult. A small drop of water hit my forehead. I looked up at the bottom of the upper berth, but I could see no leak in the dark. So I rolled out of bed to examine the empty bunk further. But it wasn't empty at all. The curtains were partially drawn, but I could see a man lying there with his back turned to me. I couldn't be sure if it was my roommate from the night before. In the scarce light, he seemed heavier, his skin haggard and so pale it was nearly grey. And yet, I was sure the captain wouldn't assign me another bunkmate without notice. It had to be him. A wave of relief came over me. Thank God he was alive. But in the next moment, relief was replaced by remorse. I had acted so thoughtlessly earlier that day. But now that my bunkmate was found, I resolved to assist him however I could. I crept forward and asked, do you need help, old boy? But there was no reply. I carefully brought my hand through the gap in the curtains to check his temperature, thinking him sick. But when I touched his skin, it was slippery, almost gelatinous. Ice coursed through my veins. This was not my roommate. I pulled my hand back when a ragged, wet moan echoed through the stranger's chest. He leaned forward, pushing the curtains aside. Under the light of the moon, I saw that his skin wasn't grey at all. It was a deep purple. He sat unnaturally still for one moment, and that's when I realized he was more monster than man. 
body lunged forward and I fell back against the porthole, hitting my head against the iron. My eyes stung as the window sprang open. Water dribbled onto my head and into the room. I blinked the salt out of my eyes. But when they focused again, the man or creature had disappeared into thin air. Coming up, a monster fills the room. Imagine living with a secret so big that if anyone ever found out, it would change everything. Imagine carrying that secret with you every day, desperate to one day get it off your chest. Do you think you could take a secret like that to the grave? I'm Estefania Hageman, host of the new podcast series, Deathbed Confessions, the show where we dive deep into the most explosive things people have admitted to while drawing their last breath. From murder, fake identities, heists, illicit affairs, and even top government secrets. This season on Deathbed Confessions, we investigate cases like Frank Thorogood, the construction worker who claimed that the drowning of Rolling Stones founder Brian Jones was no accident. Margaret Gibson, a silent film actress who, while dying of a heart attack, confessed to one of the most famous unsolved crimes in Hollywood history. And ex-CIA officer Howard Hunt, who on his deathbed confessed to playing a role in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes weekly starting July 21st. Follow and listen to Deathbed Confessions for free on Spotify. Now, back to the story. I sat on the floor, stunned, as my heart pounded in my ears and the wash of the ocean roared in the background. That's when I remembered. The porthole. It was still open. I stood on unsteady legs and latched the window shut, hoping that wherever that thing from the upper berth had gone, locking the port would keep it out. In all my years of seafaring, I'd never seen something like the monstrous being that had just disappeared from my room. I had heard strange tales, as all sea voyagers did, about the vast unknown of the ocean and the creatures that inhabit its depths. I, however, never believed it. But those tales were difficult to ignore when the intruder's slime still clung to my hand. I washed myself off in the basin and sat on my bed, collecting myself. It took me many minutes to rise from the berth and head to the captain's quarters. I didn't care that it was late. I needed answers, and I was prepared to rouse the whole ship if I needed to. I banged against the captain's door until he answered, still in his dressing gown. What happened in room 105? I demanded. The captain seemed unsurprised by my question. I asked you to switch rooms, sir, and now I'm inclined to make that an order. I stood firm. There is a monster in there. Your crew seems to know it, and you know it, and yet you haven't done anything about it. Why? The captain sighed and lowered his voice. It is impossible, sir. No one will believe us. I've tried, but the company says it's a sailor's superstition, nothing more. I have a mind to bolt the door shut and never let anyone else in. I couldn't believe it. 
Here, I had unknowingly been left to room with a monster, and the captain of the ship wanted nothing more than to board up my cabin. No, that wasn't good enough for me. I deserved answers. A room full of mystery only invites the crew to sneak inside and test their metal, I told him. We must solve this tonight. The captain looked at me for so long that I almost faltered. Then, rather than give me an answer, he turned away from me and shut the door. I stood in the hall, frozen with disbelief. The captain was a coward, and I was alone, I thought. Fine, then. So I turned on my heel. I had traveled halfways down the hall when I heard the door to his cabin open. The captain emerged in full uniform in crisp whites and a stately hat. I will examine this thing with you if you will swear to your experience, he said. I have been telling the shipping line for years that we had a problem to no solution. But the customer is always right, so perhaps they will listen to you. I nodded. I will swear, sir. The captain stood up even straighter. Very well then, let's go. Once inside the room, I checked that the porthole was secure, then suggested that we bolt the door and push a trunk against it. That way, neither human nor monster could leave the room. Whatever entered would be trapped, and perhaps I could detain it. If I had proof of this supernatural inconvenience, I could then barter with the shipping line and secure myself private cabins in perpetuity. As we waited, I used a reading lamp to search the room high and low. There were no places for something to hide, and the entire room was dry as a bone. Nary a whiff of seawater could be detected. For a moment, I began to doubt what I had seen. But I shook off the thought and decided to distract myself. I turned to the captain. Tell me about the other victims, I asked. What had happened before? He looked at me for a moment with a haunted expression, but agreed to tell his tale. In all his years at sea, he'd never captained a ship that had experienced a suicide, so the first one was a shock. But the man had been unwell and in financial trouble. It was tragic, but not completely unforeseen. The second, however, was when the trouble truly began. Rather than jumping overboard, the man had fled through the porthole. I glanced at the small window, then back at the captain in disbelief. Impossible, I said. It isn't wide enough to fit anything more than a child's shoulders, much less a grown man. The captain laughed darkly. <laughs> you think so, but the door to the room was locked from the inside, and the porthole was left wide open. A flood of water had spilled in. You'd be amazed to see what men will do when they are in pain. It was a strange image. For someone to fit through, they'd have to pop their bones, dislocate their shoulders and hips. I shivered at the thought. The captain gazed at his feet. Since then, the porthole hasn't stayed closed. I have tried to keep this vigil once before to discover why. I am ashamed to say I fled. I had been staring at the glass when something 
had stared back. A chill ran through me, and we both glanced at the porthole. We were waiting, waiting, waiting in the empty silence. Suddenly, a tiny squeak pierced the quiet, and the captain and I watched, stunned, as a screw on the porthole slowly turned. Something wanted to come in. The smell of salt wafted through the air. I was on edge, my eyes fixed on the screws of the porthole when the captain yelled. His hand was shaking, pointing at the upper berth. The curtains flapped as if some great beast or current was behind them. Then they lifted and fell from their rod. Something that looked like a human crouched inside, eerily still and staring forward. But this was no slick monster, no oozing thing. It was a man, or it had been once upon a time. But the sea had pushed its way into his veins and water had swelled the skin past its breaking point. His flesh was crusted with barnacles and splotched unnaturally gray and purple and yellow. It looked like a corpse that had been left at the bottom of the ocean. I leapt toward the creature. Hold him! I screamed, but the thing was impossibly strong under my grip. I had him for not even a moment when his flesh squelched and slid under my grip. He squirmed away from me and charged at the captain, slamming him against the door. The creature then clambered toward the porthole. I rushed after the thing, grabbing for whatever slippery skin I could and pulled. Just then, the corpse turned to look at me, and for a brief moment, I got a good look at its face. Its gaze glowed, more like yellow orbs than eyes. Tiny fish filled the sockets. Suddenly, the porthole swung open and the corpse flew from my grasp. It went legs first, diving through the small opening with a series of painful pops and squelches. His head went last, leaving us with one last glance. I could see the man's sorrow, his anguish. I see it every time I close my eyes. I kept my promise to the captain and complained to the shipping line, but I did not barter for free passage or private cabins in exchange for my trouble. After what I'd seen, I was satisfied enough to know that the doors to the room were finally nailed shut. Cabin 105 had seen its last guest. If the doll's ghost is one of F. Marion Crawford's lesser-known tales, the upper berth is certainly his most famous. It's a favorite of authors M. R. James and H. P. Lovecraft and has been anthologized numerous times since its publication. Both stories demonstrate Crawford's propensity toward the fantastic and horrible. But unlike the surreal, fairy tale-like atmosphere of the doll's ghost, it's the realism in the upper berth that makes it so terrifying. A realism undoubtedly shaped by Crawford's own experience. F. Marion Crawford was a seasoned transatlantic passenger. 
Born in Tuscany to American parents, he spent his childhood traveling between Italy and the United States, many times by steamer. And while his background is more cosmopolitan than most, it's important to remember that in the 1880s, the only way to cross the Atlantic was to spend a week aboard a ship. The Upper Berth is a story of mental illness, of the horror and vulnerability of sleeping in public, liminal spaces, and of our responsibility to one another while traveling. A modern adaptation would likely involve a transatlantic flight and a zombie for a seat partner. This certainly isn't the undead's first appearance in literature, but the upper berth is different from other Victorian ghost stories, including Crawford's own work. The doll's ghost, of course, undoubtedly includes its titular ghost. The upper berth, however, deals with a being far more tangible. Brisbane smells seawater and feels slime on his skin. He even grabs the creature with his own hands. In the original story, Brisbane begins his narration by promising a ghost story. By the end, however, we're left uncertain about what the creature in the upper berth truly was. Brisbane concludes the tale by saying, That is how I saw a ghost. If it was a ghost, it was dead anyhow. Both he and the captain know that there is no satisfactory answer to this question, not one that leaves them both alive. So they lock the berth, offering it back up to the sea. We may cross oceans, but we cannot truly harness or understand them. We can only hope they will not swallow us up, only to spit us out. Thanks again for tuning in to Haunted Places Ghost Stories. We will be back on Thursday with another chilling tale. You can find more episodes of Ghost Stories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast free on Spotify. See you on the other side. Haunted Places Ghost Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Haunted Places Ghost Stories was written by Lil Dorita and Jennifer Roche, with writing assistance by Stacey Lee Nemick and Alex Garland. Fact-checking by Amber Hurley and research by Mickey Taylor. I'm Alastair Murden. <laughs>